Yeah, you can always get spices for 99 cents, and they're going to be worth kind of what you pay for them. Um, oftentimes, these spices are, are leftovers, or what's it's the, the worst of the worst. The, the FDA, just so everybody is aware, has allowable levels of rodent feces and effect yeah. parts. So if you're buying 99 cent spices guaranteed, yeah. you're, you're eating uh, rodent feces. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome in Ethan Frisch and Ori Zohar, the co-founders of Burlap & Barrel, a well-regarded spice company that may play a starring role in your kitchen. I wanted to have these guys in to talk about the early days of their company and how both left successful careers in the restaurant world and advertising, respectively, to launch this exciting company. We also find out about their meticulous approach to sourcing spices like Guatemalan cardamom and Turkish black urfa chili. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ori Zohar and Ethan Frisch, welcome to This Is Taste. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Great. Ori, you first. I want to ask from the jump, how is Burlap & Barrel different in its approach from, you know, so many of these companies? There's there's many. McCormick obviously comes to mind, but you've got Diaspora, you've got, um, you know, Spice Walla, you know, great spices everywhere. We're, it's a, we're spoiled with the riches of spices. Yeah. So let's let's get right into it. And so... Uh, that's exactly the right question. I really think that we are right now in a spice renaissance. The world of spices has been the same since it became one of the first professions for the human race, uh, you know, so long ago. And that's really been maintained up until now because nobody really knows about where their spices come from, how they're grown, where they're grown. In some places, you'll even see the country of origin on these spices and you'll see five countries in there. And it just doesn't make sense. And mm. we've moved beyond that for everything else in, in our pantry and what we cook with. We know where our coffee beans and chocolate and tea comes from. We go to farmer's markets. We know our butchers and all that. But still with the world of spices, it's still really a mystery box. And mm -hmm. we even work with a bunch of chefs at, at incredible restaurants, Michelin-starred restaurants. They know the name of the cattle rancher. You know, they know yeah. the name of the cow that they're serving you tonight. But the spices mm. are still a mystery. And so this is why we're in a really exciting time in the world of spices because this new philosophy, and we've been pushing this forward around single origin spices. Yeah. The idea that spices are tied back to origin, that you know where they're from, and what that stands in for is that you have a really clean supply chain, you know who grew it, you knew where it went from there, because typically the spices in your grocery store, their best days were behind them before they even got to your yeah, grocery that's, store. Yeah, that's the case, absolutely. When you, when you open, even if you go to like um, a Korean grocer and you get gojigaru and you know you want it to be really fresh and floral and, and juicy and it's like flat and it's like, oh man. Um, Ethan, how did you guys link up? Like you, I, this is such a great story. The two of you come from different worlds. I mean, Ethan, you're a chef and you worked at some cool places, Tabla, Alan and Delancey. Alan and Delancey. That's a, quite the name, but how did you guys link up? Uh, at Alan and Delancey, uh, uh, at that uh, period in, in our lives, we had some mutual friends, uh, but we were both living in lower Manhattan. We were both really into food. We, we were part of this kind of extended group of friends. And I was cooking at Alan Delancey and Ori, uh, I don't know, didn't have anything better to do. So would come hang out <laughs> at the bar eating. at the end of the shift. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he figured out that if he came to like hang out with me as I was getting off work, there was, you know, usually some leftovers or a little dessert plate or something that, that we could wind up uh, <laughs> snacking on at the bar. So we've been friends for 15 years uh, and, and around that time we started our first food business together, which was a, an ice cream cart called Gorilla Ice Cream. Yeah. Flavors inspired by revolutions and political movements around the world. We donated all the profits to the Street Vendors Project and 
uh, and it was a little bit of a phenomenon. You know, it was the summer of 2010. Food trucks were really the thing. And we had this quirky cart. I was making all the ice cream myself. Ori had a full-time job in advertising. Um, And we learned a lot. Uh, We mostly learned that ice cream is the worst product to sell if you're trying to start a food business. Yeah, I mean, storage is expensive. Uh, It it melts. I mean, your product melts. uh, So you can't uh, can't put it down. Um, So when it came time to start our real food, you know, to start Burlap and Barrel, uh, which we did about seven years ago, we spent a lot of time thinking about what kind of product was the fit for the type of business that we were looking to build. Seems like altruism is at the root of your original business. You donated the profits, but then with which what you're doing with uh, Burlap and Barrel is, of course, the root as well. I mean, why did that link you together? This gorilla ice cream, I remember it. I think I wrote about it. Very unique that it wasn't capitalist. You know, it was definitely something else, a different flavor, so to speak. Yeah, good, good pun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, try less, less altruism, more activism. Maybe you know, like yeah. there's a. Our food systems are, are so fucked. I mean, uh, the food that you buy at the grocery store, not to mention the spices are low quality, but most of the other food is just plain bad for you. And somebody's making a lot of money off of off of our uh, lack of choices uh, when it comes to our food. And and Gorilla Ice Cream was, a, you know, maybe a lighthearted approach, uh, a way to talk about political issues around the world, uh, you know, and maybe in that sense for us a little bit of a failure because what we wanted to do was talk about uh, the anti yeah. anti colonial revolution in West Africa, led by an agronomist, you know, in Guinea Bissau and Cape Verde. But all anybody wanted to do was eat ice cream. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it, I believe in Trojan horse yeah, all the time, exactly, I, I believe exactly. in that methodology. Food is a great way to get people into a lot of different uncomfortable spaces. Exactly. So we source uh, wild cumin from Afghanistan now. Uh, we've mm-hmm. we were the first company to import it into the U.S. Uh, we have brought in shipments every year since 2016. Uh, including the year the Taliban took over the com- country and, and the subsequent two years, we just got in the 2023, this wow. summer's harvest. So you have to work directly with the government, with the Taliban, and work with, you know, a government that is problematic. Uh, we don't work with the government. The Taliban, anyway, it's a longer conversation about yeah, the Taliban. Sure. I, I lived in Afghanistan for a long time. Yeah. I'm very closely connected to the country. Um, and, and we have this amazing supply chain in place that despite all of the political obstacles and the Taliban and anybody else, uh, we're still able to continue to work with the producers that we've always worked with mm-hmm. and continue to bring in an absolutely exceptional product um, that has a, a real impact at origin. And, and f- for the home cook who's using it, uh, you you can use it because you care about that impact or you can use it about it because it's just amazing. It's human. just great. Yeah, exactly. Ethan, we can sidebar about living in Afghanistan. I'd like to do that. I'd like to invite you back because I'm sure that's a whole conversation. Yeah. Let's, I want to hear a little bit from you about your cooking career because you worked at Tabla with the Lake Floyd Cordos and I believe um, this restaurant firmly was one of the most influential restaurants, restaurants the past 50 years in New York City. Such an important place. What do you take away from that time there? I wanted to work there. I, I had been working at Allen and Delancey, like you mentioned. The, they closed unexpectedly, uh, and I spent a lot of time looking at restaurants that were hiring, and, and I was really inspired by Floyd's menu at the time. I mean, I was a, a lowest level of yeah. the, you know, lowest level line cook, but I, I thought his menu was really inspiring, and I loved spices but didn't know that much about them, and and hmm. that's that was really, I mean, at the time, the what the volume of what I learned from him and in that kitchen with all the the whole amazing team that he had there, I learned a ton and, and had no idea that it was going to kind of come back around in the way that it did. He reached back out to I, he reached back back out to us in uh, twenty eighteen uh, to talk about starting a line of spice blends together. I was like, this is a, I mean, yeah, this is Chef Floyd Cardoso wants to talk to me about spices. You know, it was a real a real uh, a real switch, a real moment uh, in my career. 
Um, and and we worked on that project together for about a year before he passed away. Mm. Tragically, um, such yeah. tragedy, man. What a what a yeah. what a great guy. I got to meet him several times and interview yeah. him. And but you're working with his wife on his, a collaboration. His wife Barca, who has become we've become very close. She's like an aunt to me and Ori at this point. She texted me. I, I believe it was on the day of his funeral and mm. said, "We have to do this spice bun project. Like this has to happen." Yeah. Uh, and and it's become her life's work. She we're, we're working on a or she's she just wrote a mini cookbook which we're launching in November. Nice. Um, she has several other projects. Uh, keeping his legacy of sharing Indian flavors alive has has become her life's work, and we're we'll, happy to we'll be part of it. We'll talk about collaborations a little bit later, but Ori, I want to uh, switch it back to you and and hear. Let's hear about growth in this in this spice world in this spice trade, and I'd love to get a sense of. Which category or even specific spice is really growing and booming? I, I know we write about cooking on taste and all you know all sorts of spices, but I want to get a sense of what is resonating the most. And is it ranch dressing potentially? <laughs> we that that was another one of our collaborations that we can totally <laughs> dig into. And and who doesn't want a ranch dressing that you can just make at home and honestly even eat right out of the jar? Sprinkle on popcorn. Yeah. So it's good. a good product. I bought like three jars for the holidays for my for my family. That's, it's been hard to yeah. keep them in stock. It so is. You, that's exactly the right way lucky. to buy our jars of ranch dressing uh, that we did with Soul and Ham. Um, what we've been really seeing in spices is that people are really curious about cooking. I think that a lot of folks, especially in the pandemic, we saw people come in and get reacquainted with their two back burners, you know, and really mm-hmm. starting to get to know their kitchen. And they were cooking meat and they were cooking beans and they were cooking everything else. And they, they needed the spices to go along with that. So starting in 2020, we really started seeing all of a sudden our ground bay leaves were shooting through the roof, cinnamon for all the pies and baking and everything that people were doing. And one of the other like overarching effects has been what we call uh, lovingly the Otolenghi effect, where like all of a sudden the the priority pantry was sumac and urfa, you know, yeah. and Aleppo pepper, which we call silk chili. Um, so all of a sudden people needed those in their pantry. They didn't know where to get them. Their grocery store had all the standard spices, but really nothing quite special. And so they started Googling and going Barely online. had Zatar. Barely, Barely had Zatar. Zatar Barely. was still a new thing. Yeah. So we saw that really shoot up through the roof. And and recently we've also, it took us years to get to the point where we where we had a lot of requests for garlic and onion powder. And we were like, what what do you want from those? And And it took us years to kind of find ones that were really incredible. And so now we started bringing in a garlic powder and onion powder, both from Vietnam. The garlic powder mm-hmm. kind of tastes like roasted lemongrass, basil, kind of this garlic that's really beautiful. The onion powder is also really intense and, and deeply allium flavor that yeah. you really want without it being fried or anything. We brought shallot powder in too. So alliums as a category has been really fun because you can be an incredible cook and still want that like specific hit of that deep, deep allium flavor. Or you could just be somebody that's reheating day-old pizza or wants to just put a nice crust on your mac and cheese. And those those yeah. are right there to the rescue. So some of those everyday spices that you don't have to know a recipe for, you just throw them into whatever you cook. Those have been real, real hits and really growing quickly. I love what you say about alliums and that we've written about onion powder and and, and garlic powder and, and how it does fix mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, back to you, Ethan. I want to talk about pepper because back to like a, a topic of uh, of great concern and importance, pepper. We pepper many things. We probably pepper things incorrectly. And you were just sharing the white pepper that comes from where exactly? Indonesia. Indonesia, right? It comes from Indonesia, and like it is very different from the pepper you're going to find in most most you know mills. Well, all of our spices are very different from uh, what you're going to find Fair at enough. the grocery store Fair anywhere enough. else. I mean, we the the idea of single origin, right? We're we're finding the best place in the world, and that's what we've done with this white pepper. Uh, there's an island. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but it's the truth. There's an island in Indonesia called Bangka. It's a small island that 
has a particular process for fermenting their white peppercorns, making white pepper out of fermented peppercorns. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody else in the world does it like they do. Uh, and I went to visit looking for a source for pepper in 2017. Really coincidentally, as I was planning the trip, I got an email through, you know, this is 2017. Our company was a lot smaller back then. Yeah. I got an email through our like contact us form. I don't know how he found our website, but dear Ethan, my name is Mr. Sugiri. I'm a white pepper farmer on the island of Banka. I'd like to buy, I'd like you to buy my white pepper. I was like, you aren't going to believe this, but <laughs> I'm on my way. Um, <laughs> I'm on your way with yeah, the flight. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, that's really what it was. I was already planning the trip. So I, I visited his farm as well as many others. And, and he was the one. Uh, so we've been working with him and his son, Ilham, uh, ever since then, we buy 100% of the pepper that they grow. Uh, they've been able to expand their businesses, uh, their business, uh, and, and even uh, bring some of their neighbors into a sort of a, a, the early stages of a cooperative uh, because of the white pepper that we buy and that we sell, right? Like, you know, we're buying the pepper, but really we sell the pepper and uh, it sells well because it tastes so good. It's, I mean, you open it up and there's like a like cheese, a level of cheese. There's definitely some notes of floral in there. Yeah. all So all pepper, black and white, is from the same plant. Uh, and what's different is the terroir, the, the soil, the climate that it was grown in, and the techniques used to dry or, or process it after it was harvested. Uh, white pepper has the skin removed. The outer fruit of the peppercorn is removed. You know, that's what looks like the wrinkly black skin, yeah. like a raisin on a black peppercorn. Um, and what they do on this island in Indonesia is they ferment those fresh peppercorns. So the natural sugar in the fruit uh, ferments that they they stake the, these sacks of fresh peppercorns down in a in a river or a little pond on the mm-hmm. property, uh, and you see these bubbles, kind of columns yeah. of bubbles rising up from the fermentation process. And like you said, that that cheesiness really comes from that fermentation, and it's a uh, it's an umami ingredient this all is, in its own right. You know, in addition to the heat and and other complex that you get from the peppercorn, you get this amazing umami. This component. is cool. I mean, I, I've been able to fortunately visit uh, coffee farms in in Ethiopia, and there's a lot of natural fermentation there with naturally processed coffees, and it s- seems like a similar process. Yeah, yeah. F- you know, fruit ferments, sugars ferment. Exactly. Uh, and, and it's a way of engaging with the environment. You know, like a, a way to use the the land around the farm, a way to produce a a decommodified product. I mean, to your earlier question about what makes us different, most of the spices that you buy at the supermarket, no matter how they're branded, are, are commodities. Nobody knows where they came from. They're bought and sold anonymously. They don't. T- you buy you buy and sell it on weight. There's exactly. no there's no exactly. at this trading depot. It's basically just scales. Exactly. So when you find a producer like yeah. like uh, Sugiri and his son in, in Banco or any of the people that we work with who are doing something different, it, it you take it outside of the commodity market and and it you make it a real special. So I'm going to assume you know with my work in the coffee world and and working with folks who bring coffee from single origin, you're gonna you're paying more. I would imagine. Yeah, so much more. Yeah, I mean, like 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 ten multiple. ten to twenty times more in some cases. Which is amazing for the farmers when they're when someone sweeps uh, you know comes in and, and can give them 10x it's amazing for everybody it's amazing yeah. for us to get to run a business where we can pay farmers whatever they we call it farmer-led pricing we pay yeah. farmers whatever they want we don't negotiate we don't question it we're not about we're not about cost in that way mm-hmm. we're, we're doing something different uh, and so we're we're really lucky to be able to do that and it's, it's a different kind of business model like the far, we're not just going and buying raw spices from them we're saying actually we're going to work with you in a way that you farmer are going to own the supply chain from top to bottom as until until it comes into our hands so the farmer is not just growing the spice they're grinding they're they're cleaning drying grinding yeah. preparing for export 
Ethan works with them to register them with the FDA to really help them build this kind of sustainable business where they can earn multiples of what they would earn off of selling into the commodity yeah. market. So not only are they incredible farmers, not only are they now expanding what they do beyond just growing the spices, but all the way to preparing them for export. And then what we get is we get incredible farmers, super short, clean supply chains, and really, really intense, beautiful versions of these spices. We think about terroir, we think about land, we think about where these come from in typical traditional versions of these spices. We get to do that across the whole board, and, and it's taken us now seven years to build this global supply chain across 26 countries. We pay farmers so much up front, even before the harvest. Right. We, we built this Which entire business. Which is so business. important to sustainability for their lives. Totally. Yeah. But that's how it works, and I think that that's so many other businesses come in and shaving bottom lines and in, like, yeah. what's the forecast and this and that on outputs and weights like you were talking about. We really tried to say, this is food, this is produce, these are plants and fruits. Let's talk about the actual, the retail your suggested retail pricing and just like the way the end user um, kind of interacts with with burlap and barrel and and cost structures because this is a capital intensive business you've talked about what you do you pay the farmers more you have to go to origin how much more like in terms of dollars is your is your is your product than um, another competitor in the grocery store we'll say and like a cumin from one of the big big box places yeah, you can always get spices for 99 cents and they're going to be worth kind of what you pay for them. Um, oftentimes these spices are, are leftovers or what's, it's the, the worst of the worst. The, the FDA, just so everybody is aware, has allowable levels of rodent feces and insect yeah. parts. So if you're buying 99 cent spices guaranteed, yeah. you're you're eating uh, rodent feces and yeah. insect parts. Yeah, like, like a lot of commodity foods in coffee too, it's like the same thing. It's like there's stones in there, there's insects in there, there's rodent feces in there. Yeah, there's all kinds yeah. of stuff. And really what we're trying to do is offer uh, an incredible product at around the same price as what you'd pay for, for any other well-sourced product. So our spices are all under under $10 at the grocery store. We have some collaborations that go a little bit beyond that, and that's so that we can pay out the collaborator and pay them for their time and their intellectual property and all that. But these are really the majority of our spices. You can get a jar for under $10. That ends up being pennies per serving, and what you get is something that's way better. And we've really worked hard by working with the farmers. We're able to save money that intermediaries would normally upcharge to do not value-added work. We're able to pay most of that back to the farmer, keep some of it in a way to be able to keep prices still low and not be able to charge you through the roof or something astronomical for what you would otherwise get. And we're talking about, like coffee, and, and listeners will know I've, I've gone on this this rant a little bit in the past, but to buy something that is the world's best, you know, if it's alcohol, you know, you're buying wine from the 60s, um, Latif, and it's like thousands of dollars a bottle. We're talking about $10 for Royal Cinnamon. Like guys, that, like that was wake just up. harvested. I mean, that was the, just harvested. I mean, not only is it the best cinnamon, but it was so fresh. The you know the supply chain that Ori was describing that we put together, uh, we, we receive things within months of harvest. Normally, what you buy at the supermarket is years old, ten years old, uh, and the quality it really you can really it's, tell the difference. It's just these little luxuries in life. I think cooking allows for that. It's why we love food because it's not going to break the bank for the most part when you're cooking. But you should invest in spices. How long should we keep them around? I mean, that's a. Ama- I know you win, sorry, when you say that. I mean, it's it's probably not that long, right? Our, I mean, our snarky answer to this question <laughs> is that spices don't get better with age. Uh, <laughs> use them, use them, don't store them. Um, but you know, I, I think uh, having your spices set up in a way that you can see what what you have access yeah. to that can mm. be very kind of inspirational. Using different spices in dishes than than you might otherwise expect. Um, and buy things that you're going to use, sort of rotate through them. Fair enough. So you got to use the stuff. Have you seen any like really creative spice racks for small spaces? I feel if you have a drawer, you're lucky, but a lot of people don't have drawers. I'll, I'll tell you. 
you what, in, in my small New York apartment, yeah. um, I I got these uh, uh, picture ledges. So these like three inch wide kind of things that people normally like will hang a picture against mm-hmm. the wall. So it kind of yeah. looks like it's floating. Those are the perfect width for spice jars. So, so cool. I put a couple of those in two levels lining the kitchen and you can see them. And yes, spices are sensitive to light and moisture and heat, but they're even more sensitive to being in the back of your closet for the next five years. Yeah. So like I find even keeping a couple jars right next to the stove in my apartment ends up being like because they're right next to it, I'm using them a lot more. So I just kind of rotate through three to five jars that are sitting right next to everything that I cook. It's nice to hear that's that. That's what it gets. So five years is not good. You should probably throw it away. <laughs> you should. Yeah. We usually but, say that within a year of opening the jar you should you should start looking at the next thing for it um but honestly a lot of the spices like ethan said they weren't good to begin with so like yeah will they get worse over time yeah but but you didn't really start with a great version of right we've probably been cooking with a lot of things that have been in there for five seven years let's talk about collaborations i love that you've worked with sola and hemo on this ranch seasoning and pizza party seasoning let's get into that one i feel like that was a really fun one we've had both on the show uh, a couple times, and we love ranch here. So let's how that how that start that collaboration start. We met him uh, when he was the chef at a Midtown Restaurant and was buying our spices, yep. uh, and have just kind of stayed friends with them ever since. Um, and, and they've become Sola, especially you know, such a celebrity in her own right. She has a book coming out. We we actually have a, a third blend that we're launching this week uh, called. Uh, Yo Quiero Taco Blend. Oh, cool. Uh, Fun. In, in pink but, and purple. It's like, it's like 90s Taco Bell right yeah, there. Early exactly, 2000s. Exactly, exactly. No, it's sort it of nostalgic. Copyright <laughs> differ- it's different from a copyright perspective. <laughs> okay. It's an homage, uh, you might say. Uh, or he worked in advertising, so I guess you could say. Uh, it's a parody? What, 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 yeah, whatever. parody or an homage. No, it's a, it's a taco seasoning, uh, but with that kind of childhood inspiration in mind. Uh, and, and it's great. It's spicy and cumin-y. There's a little bit of sugar in it. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, Ori and I have our own personal sort of cultural backgrounds and, and culinary expertises. But, uh, when we work with collaborators like Barker Cardoz and, and Sol and Hamill Wiley, uh, it just opens up the world so much wider. We, you know, people can draw on their own crazy ideas and inspirations and cultural backgrounds. And we're able to put, put forward really interesting, complex products, uh, made by people with, with the expertise. Yeah. Um, you know, we source the spices, we produce the blends, but it's their recipe, and we work really closely with, with How did you get to this ranch then? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of really bad ranch out there, and you kind of shaded a little bit in the funny way with the, the naming convention of this current product. Yeah, so. nothing hidden. Nothing hidden ranch. Uh, um, <laughs> also an homage, a parody. Uh, the... we're, an, we're a no HV fam here. I've said in the All show right, many nice. times, <laughs> HV is like the... We don't even say the full name. Right. Yeah. Well, this is nothing hidden. Um, the... Uh, uh, even the buttermilk, uh, we used a buttermilk powder base. Even the buttermilk powder is single origin. It's Wisconsin buttermilk cool. uh, we were able to find. Um, and, uh, I, you know, like people take their food so seriously all the time. And especially when it comes to spices, people tend to get intimidated. Cardamom and white pepper versus black pepper. There's these yeah. distinctions that people, they get sort of stuck on. And so when we have an opportunity to work with collaborators with a really good sense of humor, as, mm-hmm. as Ham and Sola do, uh, we can we can be a little more experimental and kind of put our own spin on on a product that everybody thinks they know, like ranch. So, uh, you know, inspired by but with single origin garlic that already mentioned from Vietnam, herbs from Egypt, buttermilk from from Wisconsin, uh, and, a, and a little bit of a different flavor profile. It's, do you have a dream collaboration that you've just been like dreaming up and and cooking up? Well, I know Ren uh, Rossini, who is our culinary partnerships manager. Her dream collaboration is a WNBA collaboration 
Uh, so you're for that. Uh, yeah, exactly. You're for that. I, I'll, I'll let her answer that question. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, I've been thinking about this, and I've been dreaming about still doing some kind of tinned fish collaboration. There's all these new companies doing cool experimental stuff with tinned fish. What's the garlic in there? What's the paprika in yeah. there? Yeah, we could do something really fun. I even recently got a, a sardine tattooed on my forearm, so I'm, oh. I'm, I'm all in on the tinned fish. Wow, where's the sardine from? Is my, there like, does it have an origin? My mother well, hates it. it single it origin. Has, sardine. Yeah, single origin. This is a. Uh, for those listening, anyways, but no, it's it's a woodcut of sardine, just because that's that's kind of what brought my family it's, here to this it's country. It's very cool. It's and very I love cool. sardines. Yeah, um, let's talk about some of the spices in particular, and I wanted to go over a couple. Um, maybe you could give us a little bit of of a sense of what it is, how we cook with it, and I think these are words and terms that we and and products that we we write about. And one is urfa, black urfa. I love cooking with it. I put Urfa on popcorn. I love that. But Ethan, what do you what do you think about Urfa? Yeah, Urfa uh, is a city in Turkey, an area in Turkey. It's a good and there's Bieber, Biber. Yeah, Bieber. It means pepper in Turkish. Right. Uh, same root as the English word. Uh, also, you know, black pepper and white pepper. It was a Christopher Columbus uh, called the chili peppers he found in the Americas peppers because he was trying to make everybody think he had made it to Asia. So we're still stuck with this uh, this confusion, and it's extended into other languages. So Turkish Urfa Bieber is uh, Urfa pepper. Um, it's a, a black chili flake. Um, the, the peppers themselves start out as red peppers. It's an Aleppo variety pepper grown in southeastern Turkey that get cured. So after they're harvested ripe, red, uh, they get cured in the sun and they oxidize. They turn black. They, they, um, they develop these kind of roasty, chocolatey. I mean, you're talking about mm-hmm. coffee. They, they have this kind of espresso flavor profile as well as being a chili. So there's, there's still the heat. Uh, and then after curing, they get stone ground, a process that can take uh, 24 hours in a, a stone grinder with a little bit of salt and oil. Uh, to create this this really special texture. It's a, a texture of chili flake that you don't find really anywhere else in the world. The, the Turks have perfected this stone grinding process. How do you cook it with it? What's, uh, your, what's your favorite? Honestly, use it anyway. You'd use a chili flake. There are yeah. lots of traditional applications, but um, it's great on pizza, great in a tomato sauce, great on scrambled eggs, great mixed into beans or a stew. It, it, it's an umami booster. So it, it really adds this, this depth, this kind of chocolatey, uh, spicy depth. Next one is the, and this is something that I've always been puzzled by. I, I, I've cooked with it. I remember back in the day, uh, there was some, uh, uh, there was a pancake serve smell that was gripping New York, and it was the cause of it particularly. But this is fenugreek and Giza green fenugreek. Yeah, fenugreek. I'm just opening. I have a jar oh, in got, front of me. Let's go. Let's pass it around a little bit. Do you remember this? This like maple syrup smell it was yeah. like Gawker covered it. I think in 2005. It was yeah. like, why does New York smell maple syrup? Apparently it was fenugreek. It's fenugreek. Uh, fenugreek is a seed and an herb used in a lot of um, South Asian and, and Persian cooking um, in the leaf form and in the seed form. Ours comes from, from Egypt. It's an heirloom variety. You know, it comes from Egypt. So it's called Giza. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giza variety green fenugreek, which is unique to Egypt. Most fenugreek that you come across, the seeds at least are yellow. Uh, and these are green. I don't know why exactly, but they are. And and they have a, I find a more herbal kind of complex flavor. Uh, fenugreek is known for smelling like maple syrup. Yeah. And I find the green one, the one that we carry, is a little farther from maple syrup. It has this extra dimension, oh, this sort of herbal profile. What do you, what do you think of it? I mean, I, you definitely have this like a little bit of that synthetic log cabin maple syrup <laughs> style because I don't think it smells like a, a a pure maple syrup. But then it goes into a I I get coriander. It goes into mm. that realm a little bit more, and which is like 
herbaceous, uh, maybe effervescence. Uh, I mean, it's, it's complex. I mean, I, I'd like to know how you cook with it. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole room, the studio that we're in now, <laughs> like, I, I smell it. Yeah. Um, it, it goes into a lot of curries and stews yeah. uh, as a base along with other spices. It's, it's a background flavor to add a little bit of sweetness, add a little bit of nuttiness, uh, but you would use it alongside something like uh, our Floyd Cardo's Goan Masala or Garam Masala. Um, you would use it in a, a Persian dish, you know, alongside uh, sumac or, or uh, turmeric. Um, I've even just been using it in stir fries or anything. Anywhere where I want a bit, a hit of sweetness, like sure, I'll add a little bit of sugar, but this just fills with that kind of mapley aroma that really ends up kind of almost tricking your senses. And yeah, kind it's of definitely making, a trick. Yeah. Or that's a good point. I love that. Let's do one more. I think we should do... Let's do, yeah, royal cinnamon. I think that's something that we're entering the holiday season right now. And like, we obviously love baking with cinnamon, but cinnamon can be used in savory cooking. Uh, you know, it certainly is used in, in a lot of Chinese cooking uh, and Chinese five spice, of course. Uh, but what do you. It goes uh, great with fenugreek. Um, royal hmm. cinnamon uh, is a very rare species of cinnamon. There are four different species. So it's a species that, that most people in the US probably have not tasted before. Uh, it's the historic Vietnamese cinnamon. So, you know, when, when you buy Saigon cinnamon now, it's grown in Vietnam, but it's a, the Chinese species. This is the, the, the real deal, the, the older one. Uh, we got to visit the mountains where it grows last summer. Um, a pretty incredible trip, uh, an area called Quang Nam, central Vietnam, way up in the mountains. Uh, and farmers grow cinnamon trees for 15 to 20 years before they harvest them. So it's a real intergenerational process. Farmers are planting trees that their children are going to harvest. Uh, they see that investment, you know, literally and it's the grow same investment over time. You're making with the other products. It's you're paying above the commodity value for these these products because you've you've appointed them and you've you've tasted them and you know that these are the the finest examples. It's the best cinnamon in the world. How many reviews do we have on our site? Almost a thousand now. A thousand five-star reviews. It's yeah. cinnamon. You know, like you buy cinnamon at any supermarket, but this is, it's really special. Cinnamon. I mean, I'm getting, the, and no offense, uh, Jolly Rancher. Now, Cinnamon Jolly Rancher, if anyone has ever had that, it is like the purest Pepperiest. I feel like that's cinnamon because it's chemical. I've never tasted a cinnamon Jolly Rancher. So they had them in the 90s. I don't know if this has actually been discontinued, but I remember um, I was playing Little League and I would go get the cinnamon Jolly Rancher stick. Maybe that's my uh, dream collaboration answer. Maybe we could get uh, Jolly Rancher Are to you make kidding a, me? a Jolly Rancher with <laughs> Can you our imagine royal cinnamon. A royal cinnamon or even like. I mean, you could do a savory. I mean, there's so many ways that... We we do have a, a new cinnamon product uh, that is launching later this year for the holidays. Uh, we're doing a line of spiced sprinkles. Oh, cool. Uh, like ice cream sprinkles. Uh, That's I, neat. I don't want to give away too many details, no. but uh, the cinnamon is, is one of the ingredients. Or let me let me ask you and, and both, um, we're talking about people here a lot, and, and this is a big part of your business. Now, you said that you represent 26 countries. How much, how do you get to origin? I mean, it seems like it would be very difficult to do that much travel, but is it something that you've committed to and you actually go to all these places? Well, I, I can share a, a little bit of just like, we, we build this big international supply chain and, and so many, there's so many things about our business where they can happen when they happen. You know, like we started this business only with a handful of countries that Ethan had traveled to and built built uh, supply chains over there. We have our wish list of spices that we'd love to bring in and to be able to, to kind of expand into the lineup. But as everybody knows, so many businesses make decisions based on these big industrialized things and market research and most spice blends are made domestically. What we're learning here is that it takes time. We need to build up these relationships. We need to meet these farmers. 
We need to go solely. We, we went to Vietnam for three weeks in search of the best cinnamon and the classic Vietnamese cinnamon. We traveled all across the northern border with China. We didn't find anything there that matched our, our standards. Wow. And then we went and we, walk, we were walking through in central Vietnam. We were walking through and literally these people in a garage that was open were going and cleaning cinnamon, you know, bark and, and, and processing How and grinding exciting. it. And we were overwhelmed by the smell that, right, we, this was the biggest purchase that we'd made it as a business. We bought a thousand kilograms of the cinnamon on the spot from these farmers that we had met that day because we were con- convinced that they were doing stuff the absolute right way. We went with them. We spent time. And now we are we are one of their, if not their absolute biggest customer. And, and we've invested in that relationship time and time again. So each of these relationships, Ethan's our supply chain guy. He's the one that's been traveling now with, with a little kid is a... Uh, is 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 now his son is getting uh, spice uh, farm trips also. Oh, but, cool! But it happens slowly and intentionally, and we and we build these long term relationships that we just keep coming back year time and time again because many spices it's an annual harvest. The farmer's entire livelihood depends on this. How can we be that partner that gets the absolute best stuff that they can grow and allows them to grow things that the commodity market would uh, never pay never. them to grow? I mean, like, are you just like? Like you just shoving a suitcase of dong in in you know to these folks <laughs> and and just like saying I'm gonna buy one thousand kilograms. I feel like how do you do this? It's all about trust. It's all about building a relationship. Uh, the visit to origin. I mean, you know, maybe it sounds expensive. Really, the trips are not that expensive, but uh, the. It, showing up, literally showing up is really important. It sets a tone for a long-term relationship. It lets us explain our business model to a new partner farmer. It lets us understand what they're doing. We, you know, we'll sit down and have a conversation, walk them through our whole business. Here's what we spend on shipping. Here's what we spend on warehousing. Here's how all the costs come together. We'll show them our website and see, you know, a jar of cinnamon yeah. is being sold for $9.99 on our site. How does that ladder down to all of the costs? And and then have do the same exercise for their business? What are their inputs at the beginning of the season? Are they hiring people to help with harvest or planting? Uh, what do they do in the off season for income? You know, like really get into it so that um, so that we can then work together closely for, for the long term. Okay. So how do you both deal with like customs and tariffs? I mean, all these countries, you need to keep your supply chain going, flowing. You need to have actual product because you can't promise product and then have it be out of you know, out of shipment or out of service for, you know, two years. I mean, that's not good business. How do you, how do you deal with all that? Our number one rule is never import on a deadline. <laughs> it's just going to take as long that's as it a takes. Great, you just can't look at the clock. You just can't look at the clock. Yeah. You know, everybody moves at their own pace. It's got to work its way through the system. And we do our best to have our paperwork right. And, you know, no matter how hard we try, there's always something, there's always some delay or some misconnection and, and you just got to, mm-hmm. you know, you just got to go with it. Yeah, I'm sure during the pandemic, too, it was even worse because of the, those boats were just not getting to shore. Yeah, the pandemic was a whole, I mean, really a, a, a huge uh, positive change for our business in a lot of ways because it, it grew our direct-to-consumer audience by 1,000% in 2020. From 2019 to 2020, wow. our e-commerce grew 1,000% because everybody was stuck at home, cooking more, shopping online for food, often for the first time. Uh, but we've been really gratified to see that that has continued. We have a really strong direct-to-consumer business. That's 80% of our it's business today. It's amazing that you say that, 80%. Is it all by boat or is there any air freight? It's air freight, it's boat, it's trucks, it's, yeah. you know, every donkeys. I mean, every yeah. every transportation method you can imagine to get spices from small farms all around the world to, to home kitchens across the U.S. It's amazing. You guys are on Shark Tank. And, 
I'm not going to spoil the show, but it seems like you didn't take the deal. I just want to know, like, both of you, what was that experience like? It's a it's a really cool show. We all love that show. I'm sure you were fans. But what was that like? Yeah, my, my mom is the biggest fan, honestly. For, oh, so for years, like since we one. started the business, she was like, you should go on Shark Tank. And and we eventually figured it out. She was uh, right the whole time. <laughs> yeah. uh, Shark Tank mm-hmm. was really fun. I don't know. Shark Tank, they have a massive audience. They introduce entrepreneurs and businesses to this huge, huge group of people. We were really happy to be on the show. We were excited to see if the sharks, you know, would have would have been excited and 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 kind of bid each other up and all of that. But we just knew that getting on the show, yeah. we knew that getting the sharks to try the spices, we went through this whole process with hair and makeup and wardrobe and all this. And the producers really wanted us to get the sharks like make a, a yogurt dish, make popcorn, make something with the spices. And we're like, they're going to try these pure uncut spices. And Mark Cuban is going to eat a peppercorn. And Gwyneth Paltrow, who was our guest shark, uh, is going to is gonna kind of like get a nose full of cinnamon. And so it was really a beautiful experience because what it did, forget the deal or no deal or any of that stuff, which we were pretty happy to also not have. Uh, we yeah. didn't want an, uh, an investor. We're a bootstrapped company. We yeah, didn't you want no, an investor. You're no money. You're, you're friends and family yeah. only. Yeah, Ethan and I turned not out even, our own pockets. It's not just even us, friends not even family. friends and family. It was just my savings and Ori's savings. And American Express, I'm sure. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. And extending <laughs> some credit here and there. But we were we were we were excited to be on the Shark Tank because it effectively introduced us to so many new customers. So many people across America watch that show and really love it. Mm-hmm. And having the sharks try the spices absolutely loving them and, and giving that endorsement and saying, oh my God, I've never had cinnamon like this. These are the most potent, intense, wonderful peppercorns I've ever tried. Yeah. Having that kind of endorsement was was the best case scenario that and we could have probably had. And you saw spike in traffic on your we website. We saw a huge spike in traffic when it aired. And even still now, people are watching the episode and coming in there and our Shark Tank collection is selling well. So it was really it was really a wonderful gift. We were so excited to be on that stage. We tried our best. We, we prepared we were, for We were months. so damn prepared. We had, you know, they call it reality TV, but we scripted did our yeah. <laughs> entire uh, performance literally practiced like we were rehearsing for a play running lines yeah. flashcards quizzing each other mock interviews with my mother and any random entrepreneur or friend we could we could coerce into helping us out we uh we it took us a year to get on the show and we took it so I love seriously it. and it, it paid off clearly it, it paid off and i'm sure did you guys get nervous was there nerves involved I mean, I, I was absolutely nervous. And we, there are cameras in your face. Like, I don't think you understand this, but the amount of gigantic cameras that are kind of tracking you and zooming in. And when we were watching it back, half of the shots are there's them rapidly zooming into one of our faces. And that was <laughs> nerve wracking. But they're waiting for you to, like, trip over your shoelace. They're waiting for you to, oh, like, Oh, yeah, they you know, want to see a choke. They so, want to see the nerves. Oh, my God. We you know. prepared so much to just avoid that. But, we, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, you described our business as, as sort of a non-capitalist business. That was also sort of the fun of being on Shark Tank, right. which <laughs> is this, like, you know, a, the dis, a dis- of the most capitalist kind of behavior you can imagine this like haggling over shares in a company that barely exists uh, we we wanted to make a little bit of a subversive presentation of you know let's put a non-capitalist How business fun. on this stage. I'm sure Cuban was really 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 loving that. Uh, you know they you know it was a little subtle. You know maybe he's not paying so, such close attention. Yeah, no, I yeah. mean we, you know we we still it had to come across as a as a commercial for the company which it which it did. But also we were trying to make a a, a little a, bit of a like deeper coded point. language. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I'm gonna have to watch, check out the episode. My friend Marijuana Irani runs Spice Wall, and he just opened up, uh, recently opened up a retail space, and I love it. It's in Nashville. It's beautiful. Do you Have you thought about doing retail? Like a space, like a physical space? Do you know us, the e-commerce business is so beautiful. You're asking about what happens when we run out of spices. In the pandemic, we were running out of everything. But what we were able to do is set up a domestic supply chain. So we started bringing in salt from Syracuse. We started bringing in ramps from upstate New York. And all of a sudden, we said, don't look over here. These things that are sold out, look over here at all these wonderful, really fun new things. 
Retail would be great. We're trying to get into more grocery stores because the grocery store is especially specialty. People come in, everyone has their favorite wine store, cheese store, butcher shop that they go to find really cool new stuff. We want to be there, but nothing beats. I mean, our e-commerce, our site is one of the best food e-commerce experiences on the internet. It, you can get a masterclass in spices. We have a techniques book. Mm-hmm. Ethan Ethan wrote that about like to learn how to cook with spices. We just can't do that in the same way at retail. Yeah, sure, you can grab and go if you need something really quick for dinner, but we, we have industry leading yeah. speeds of shipping. We have over 100 spices on the site. We have depth of recipes. And if you want, we have our spice forum on Facebook, a group of 10,000 people that's just dying to give you it's recommendations fun. on how to cook with the spices. So, you guys, so you work with uh, with food service in like QSR? Do you have like those accounts? Yeah. Uh, we we started, I mean, I came from the restaurant world. Right, and so that exactly. was where we started selling to restaurants. Right, because I hear you said your friend had come in and, and bought from you or yeah, your, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Ham. Ham. Ham, uh, sorry. Yeah. Ham Elwelli was a customer of ours. Yeah, I mean, we sell to 11 Madison Park, uh, Blue Hill, Chez Panisse, but we've also worked with Sweet Green and Chopped and, you know, a, a very wide range That's of, fun. of uh, restaurants. That's yeah. fun, like dipping your toe into food service and not being the chef anymore and being able to like work with them but not be a chef. Yeah, you know, we're the experts in right. spices, which chefs are experts in many things, but often not in spices. And especially, you know, we do a lot of work with Dig, the the New York and Boston um, mm-hmm. uh, farm-to-table kind of quick-serve concept. And, uh, and they they're really good at sourcing and cooking Brussels sprouts, but we get to be the uh, the resource oh, when it comes to spices. Got a couple more. What's the biggest challenge in running CPG right now? I mean, it seems like cogs are really, 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 uh, really high and, and increasing at a rapid pace. But maybe that's not your your concern. Or I'll start with you. Yeah, I, uh, cogs good. I like it. We're getting into the nitty gritty. We're getting into a little nitty gritty. <laughs> we're getting into a little industry talk. You're you're, you're forty minutes in, so we're yeah. getting into that. Cogs yeah. cost of goods sold. Yeah, uh, the cost to us. Um, what I think what's really hard right now is that big national grocery stores, everyone thinks that's like going, getting into Whole Foods is making it. Those are the most expensive places you could possibly sell your products as a small producer. And so we're really trying to figure out how, to, how do we keep building our e-commerce, make it more engaging, making it faster. We just added a mystery spice to our site so that like you're going to get a, a random really spice fun. from our lineup. We have our Spice Club, which is our quarterly mystery box subscription. Every, every three months, you have a four full-size jars of spices, new spices, new harvests, plus an extra Ooh. collaboration item. What's that cost? It's $45 once nice. a quarter. And we have almost 4,000 subscribers to that. And wow. our whole nice. team is involved in putting it together it's and no coming joke. up with theme and recipes and all that. But like, this is the biggest challenge is that the traditional ways of running a spice company, which is through grocery, are so expensive and often kind of off limits unless you have giant, giant investors or that you're owned by Unilever or Procter & Gamble or one of those gigantic companies. So our big challenge is how do we make this online so fun, so fast, so creative, so easy, so expansive, so specialized that that it feels like a whole new world of kind of getting into, you come into our like kitchen and we're able to show you around and walk you through all the spices. So we, we've been working at that for years since the beginning of the company. And if you haven't visited our site, it's burlapandbarrel.com. It's super fun. Um, and I encourage all the listeners to check it out. Yeah, we'll definitely link to the show notes. So Ori, I want to ask you about your family in Israel. How are they doing? They're they're doing okay. They're accounted for. Some have been drafted back. Some of them are are just kind of staying put. So let me ask you, you know, living in New York and witnessing, you know, the last, this is, we're recording this in late October and, and what you've been seeing online and just, um, there's been a lot of, a lot of conversations around uh, the conflict and the war, the Israel-Hamas war. So I want to ask you, Ori, like, how are you feeling with, um, right now with what, what's going down? 
It's it's been it's been really overwhelming. I think everybody, all my friends, everybody in in their lives, like there's just this like cloud hanging over all of us. We're just watching. We're just waiting. We're just hoping for the best. But it's really been just absolutely uh, heartbreaking to just see the, the how things have been developing. It's been a known a known issue, a known tension. It's been. It's been really terrible, and it seems like the civilians, which, you know, we, we travel all around the world. We work with farmers everywhere. We have farmers in Palestine that, that, that grow and blend this incredible za'atar. We're, we're concerned for them. We're concerned for the family members. But so, so often it's civilians that pay the cost for these kind of international conflicts on an ongoing basis, even way before this conflict. But, but even now moving forward, things just seem to be escalating, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking to it see is. the kind of human cost of it. What is uh, what is something that our listeners should know about the conflict, especially from the Israeli point of view, that maybe is being forgotten or just not talked about enough? I, I, I just always come back to the fact that that just to remember there's humanity behind this. There's so much stuff online that gets forwarded to me that I keep seeing people come through and everyone's just trying to kind of like punch each other. Mm. And and just to go back to the people, their parents making dinner for their kids, trying to go to school, trying to live a life with, without having to worry about running into bomb shelters or, or going into hiding or, or losing a family member. Um, I don't know. Every time I just bring this back to, to humanity and to the people behind it and to the people that are just there trying to, trying to live their lives, like this is really what government is meant to govern and, and that's their job. And it seems like there's this totally other, larger agenda that people are pushing and masculinity and who's punching who back harder and what's going on that it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. They're, they're human lives here. And so if we can come back to human decency and human care, um, that, that, that I think is, let's start from that point and then we can continue the conversations from there. So you were born in Israel and lived there and, you know, have a lot of family. My father-in-law was born there as well. And I just like get a sense of your relationship with, with, with Palestinians. I mean, I'd like to get that down. I mean, I feel like we don't talk about Israelis and Palestinians and like relationships, especially living in places like Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa, cities, like real things, not constructs, not abstract, you know, spaces, but real spaces. What is that like? I think that I speak, I can speak for myself and my family, but like we, you, you just want to live, live your full life. You want to live a warm life. You want a, a life full of diversity, interesting people, different backgrounds, different foods. I don't know. There are very few Israelis that would argue that the best hummus is Israeli, just as a, as a concept. <laughs> like, right. We, right. we, we want like, it's just a, a fuller, warmer, better life when we can, when we can integrate and, and kind of coexist in, in a much, in a much better way. And so it doesn't feel like that's been the priority of the of the Israeli government. Um, it doesn't feel like we're we're close to that, or there's a way through this. So it's just been really heartbreaking knowing that the people that are going to pay a lot of the price for this are are the are the everyday people that are that are just trying to make a living, put food on the table, go to school, give their kids a better life. Like these are the human things that are behind all of this. And I think that it's very easy to get away from that when we start thinking as in groups, or or we start stereotyping, we start kind of zooming out. You, you you lose that kind of core humanity to it. So in Israel, there are Palestinians. We, we, we live together. We, we work together. We, we build really cool stuff. We eat better together. And so mm-hmm. uh, there's so much commonality there. And, and, it's, and it's just heartbreaking that, that the two groups just to, to be ripped apart by, by the, the people in charge. Mm-hmm. Of, External forces. Yeah. So Ethan, I want to ask you, your business partner is Israeli. Uh, I'm not sure about your background, um, but how does that affect you? 
Yeah, I, I'm a New York Jew, uh, but have spent a lot of time in Palestine working with Palestinians. I worked for Doctors Without Borders in Jordan. All of my colleagues were Palestinian. I, I wrote my, I have a master's degree in uh, conflict, violence, conflict, and development. I wrote my thesis on the uh, Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade during the Second Intifada in Janine. I'm on the board of a youth theater organization in Janine. Uh, and, and we carry a Palestinian Zatar because Ori and I both thought it was really important to have a Palestinian Zatar in our lineup. You know, we could have gotten a Zatar from a lot of other places. Uh, we explored a lot of other options, but um, the the herb, the thyme, uh, sort of thyme oregano hybrid that's called Zatar, that's used in the blend, is native to the to the Eastern Mediterranean, um, to the Levant, and to Palestine in particular. And uh, we spent we spent a long time. It took us a long time to find a producer who was using not only that herb, the real thing, but also other ingredients uh, grown in the West yeah. Bank itself. Um, you know, our our company sort of uh, overlaps with geopolitics in a lot of places, in a lot of ways. Afghanistan, the earthquakes in Turkey earlier this year, uh, the current crisis in uh, in Israel and Palestine, um, and, and we've just seen time and time again, like Rory said, it's about entrenched interests and money and power and people. Uh, people, the regular people, are, are often uh, sort of mm. left left by the side of the road, uh, treated like a commodity. You might say. I mean, there's a, a real. Um, you know, uh, uh, something that's lost when we're focused on numbers, whether it's money in a business or or sort of in in a government kind of context and lose the connection with individuals. As an American Jew, as I am, how do you feel when you go to Janine and, and spend time with people in Janine? How do you feel about what the, con- the conditions in Janine? That's a complicated question. Uh, I've been through the West Bank many times, but I've also been to a lot of other countries. Uh, you know, we, we, I lived in Afghanistan for two and a half years. Like I've seen a lot, uh, I've seen a lot of the, the best and the worst of people, but, um, but it's people in systems that cause problems. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, the, the system between Israel and Palestine, between Israelis and Palestinians keeps, keeps them apart. You know, you asked, uh, what, what about Palestinians that, you know, Israeli, as an Israeli, do you know Palestinians? I think the answer is most Israelis don't know Palestinians, and and the picture that has been painted for them uh, is is somebody's agenda of what the, what they want an Israeli to think of as a Palestinian. And even in the way that you see the media coverage of the current crisis, uh, the words that are used, the the framing, the the headlines. Uh, it's it's all about creating an image of a, a diverse group of people with a lot of individuals and a lot of religions and backgrounds and inter- interests and political ideologies uh, that get looped together for for somebody's political convenience to kind of paint a, a negative picture that that then allows the Israeli government to continue oppressing them and continue keeping this distance. Israelis don't want to know Palestinians because they've been told that mm-hmm. all kinds of things. Um, and, and then that just sort of entrenches the division that, that Ori was talking about. The situation in Janine uh, and in a lot of small cities in the West Bank, I, I uh, have never been to Gaza, but been to quite a few cities in the West Bank. They're beautiful. They're beautiful ancient cities with ancient traditions, beautiful architecture, um, uh, uh, Nablus is famous for its olive oil soap, incredible olive oil soap, and this beautiful cheesy dessert called kanafa. And mm-hmm. if you have kanafa, oh, yeah. anything other than Nablusi cheese, you're not really. Having I know a, I've had know. It in Jerusalem, and uh, certainly it's good. But yeah, I've heard. so so you know, the, there's there's a lot more uh, history and complexity and and, uh, and tradition to be valued rather than blown up. I mean, it's crazy. We we can work with a group of uh, producers in Palestine, pay them a lot of money. 
connect them with with customers in the U.S. You know, our customers, home cooks, professional chefs. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a better direction than creating conflict. You can you can bring people together over a, a shared interest, whether it's in food or making money or whatever it is. Uh, that's way more fun and productive. I'll link to a story in the show notes. We went to Ramallah about four years ago, and I have a great photo essay from my friend Ayal. And and I think it's important to to talk about the people in in the West Bank and in terms of um, not the conflict and not war, but as the people. Yeah, yeah, the people and and traditions and um, and culture that that is so fleeting, yeah. right? Like it's fleeting. People it's are connected. Well people are connected to culture, and and when you lose, when people lose their connection to their home. Uh, when when buildings are blown up, new buildings or old buildings, uh, you lose that. Um, we almost lost. I mean, you asked about the Urfa Chile earlier. If you had asked me that question six months ago, I would have told you that we were never going to carry it again. Our our suppliers' factory in southern Turkey was totally destroyed. They sent us these crazy pictures of the factory just collapsed, and somehow they were able to move some of the equipment out, get into a prefab facility. We placed a, a big order mm-hmm. to help finance that. Uh, help finance that move, um, and and they were able to get back on their feet. I think it's a little bit cliche to talk about resilience. Sure, people are resilient because they have to be resilient because uh, other forces, governments or militaries or whoever is is forcing them to be resilient. People shouldn't have to be, but uh, but they are thankfully. And all I wanted to add is that as as co-founders of Burlap and Barrel, we get to put our our finger on the scale, and what where we are putting our finger is in supporting smallholder farmers and supporting businesses. And so as you buy our spices, sure you can care about the farmers' lives and who's behind them, but you can also just enjoy the best za'atar you've ever had in your life. And our supply chain is one that's anchored in Palestine. And and that's where that money flows into because we believe that we can create kind of prosperity by building these farmer-led supply chains. And and that's how we put our kind of foot on the scale. On this is taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you guys ready? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ethan, I'm starting with you. The best breakfast. Uh, a Turkish breakfast is the best breakfast. Uh, a million little tastes of different cheeses and jams and eggs and breads and olive oil and za'atar and tomato. Just amazing. Mm. Okay. Okay. We're going. Okay. I'm in. Both of you are going to answer these. My favorite breakfast is I just like to do like a fried egg on an open face sandwich. I throw in cobanero chilies or za'atar or urfa or all that stuff. Just get a, a sliced sourdough toast. Slather it with butter. Put a couple fried eggs on there. It's it's perfection. The best dessert. Uh, ice, ice cream. I'm going to tell you. No, you should tell them about what's going on in Jackson Heights with that combo dessert. That's the absolute best. Oh, there's a bakery. I yeah. live in Jackson Heights, Queens, and there's an amazing little neighborhood Italian bakery called Letty's uh, that does a combo cheesecake flan. Uh, that's just epic. Cheesecake on the bottom, flan on the top. Stop. My wife, my wife got it for me for my birthday. You know that's uh, Letty's. Letty's. Stop it. Yeah, shout out to Letty's. Shout out to Letty's, Thirty Seventh Avenue in Jackson Heights. Your favorite American fast food chain, Ori? Oh my God! I people are gonna get mad about this, but I really think In and Out's doing it right. When I was a kid, I grew up in Baltimore. Fuddruckers was the best hamburger that you could oh, possibly definitely. get, right? Um, um, but but now that I'm in New York and there's still no In and Out, I go back to California. I'm just I'm dining there for most of my meals. I have a lot of nostalgia for the Burger King onion rings. Have it, okay, it's good so stuff. why why so good? There must be like a spice. Uh, they're flavor. sweet. You know that yeah. the the breading is like this amazing crunchy texture and has a and it's pretty sweet. So it's like kind of a crunchy salty candy. It's uh, oh, I highly recommend. It's, it's speaking my language. Your favorite recent cookbook discovery. 
uh, Barca Cardoza, our collaborator on the Floyd Cardoza yeah. Masalas, has written a cookbook, which we uh, worked very closely with her on. And there's a dish in the cookbook, a... Um, it's it's a savory, speaking of sort of sweet savory crossovers, it's a savory tapioca dish, sort of a stir-fried tapioca pearls with aromatics and spices. Uh, it's pretty cool. Your favorite New York City restaurant, classic edition, both of you can answer this, or are you first? Oh, my God. I, I don't know. This this isn't, this is classic, at least for my time in New York City. I was here, like, right right out of college for, for and then and then did a stint in San Francisco, but don't judge me, please. Um Honestly, I can't stop thinking about Superiority Burger. Oh, same, same. That was going to be my answer, too. Right? We're, we're just big fans. Brooks is doing such incredible food. They moved into the larger Odessa diner space. He's so Completely. creative. You, you don't, you go there, and sure, it's vegetarian and, and, and mostly vegan, and, like, you're not tired. of it. It's so creative. It's so thoughtful. The flavors are so rich and robust. And sure, there are burlap and barrel spices in the recipes, but just he's such a such a wonderful, creative, and thoughtful chef that like you take you take the biggest carnivore there, and they're like, I get it. You get it. And also, he's a pastry chef by trade, and pastry chefs, as we all know, are so so tuned into flavor profiles and spices create ultimately that. And I would imagine. He just is really keen on great spices. Makes a lot of sense. And it's a party. And it's like such a cool, fun, different dining experience. Couple more. Your favorite sandwich. This is a hard one. I don't know. Probably like a a bagel with cream cheese and lox. That's probably my favorite sandwich. Is a bagel a sandwich? Uh, Absolutely not, but that is okay. (laughs) That's a debate. Um, I, I don't know. I, I love those like big textural crunchy veggie sandwiches that just have every single vegetable you have in the refrigerator in there. Um, that's one of my favorites. I'm also a, a tinned fish guy. So yeah. if, if one of those fish ends up in there, that's okay too. Last question. What is the spice of life? That's a great question. I don't know. I think, I think for, for me personally, like it's, it's been so fun to move from starting my career in big corporate advertising and marketing places, learn, learning about that, sure, learning business, but now, now we get to do and run and build our own business. And that's so much more interesting. We have independence. We can do cool things. We can find great collaborators. We can hire people that are so non-traditional to those roles. Half of our team have no experience in the roles that they're playing, but they're really good home cooks and they're really thoughtful people and they love the spices. And so everything else they can figure out. So we've really, really, the spice of life is is being able to really build a business in this way with kind of no boundaries on it. And we've been able to come up with so many fun, unexpected, creative solutions for it. Fair. So it's been really fun. The spice of life. Yeah, that was a great what answer. What is the spice of life? Uh, that was a great answer. You're right. Uh, can spices be the spice of life? I mean, is sure. That, is that a cheap shot? No, it's you great. know, like the the flavor, the 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 evocative nature, the history, the the botany, the the science. It all just sort of spices are such a fascinating category. This is such a fascinating conversation. Ori Zohar and Ethan Frisch, thank you so much for joining. This is Taste. Thanks for having. Thank us. you. Brad Metzger, welcome back to This Is Taste. What's up, man? Not much. Recuperating after LA ChefCon. So I wanted to have you back because our, our initial conversation, and I'll link to in the show notes, was about you know what LA ChefCon is and like what your what, a little bit about your history working in the restaurant industry for for a while in LA. But I wanted to have you back to talk about the actual con because man, I was there and I saw a lot of themes and I and I just like was really impressed. I really enjoyed myself. Thanks for thanks for having me, buddy. Thank you. Thanks for coming all this way for that. Yeah, man. So 
tell me this. I feel like there were a couple audiences there. One thing that I liked about it was that it was definitely industry, which is something that we talk about on the show a lot. And I think a lot of thought leadership starts in the industry and then trickles down into the consumer side. Um, but then there was a lot of media there, a lot of media. It was great, like seeing all sorts of media friends. Um, do you feel like this this iteration of ChefCon was different or same from previous years? Um, it was different. It was definitely the best so far. Um, I think that we really, really did a great job last year. And the word got around like it never has. And the level of people, the industry that really came out to support and even bought tickets was really incredible. I mean, we had people like um, Walter Mansky calling me saying, Brad, I see it's sold out, but I want to bring, you know, five of my chefs and my GMs. And I'm like, Walter, of course, we'll make room for you. Um, we had Curtis Stone. Curtis, Curtis always participates as a speaker or does some cooking. He's one of the first people I re I always reach out to, and he couldn't commit to it like four or five months ago when I started lining up all the all the panels. But he said, you know, I can't because I'm supposed to be out of town. Um, but if I can make it, I really want to come. And I just forgot about it. But then at like 1030 in the morning, he's texting me saying, hey, Brad, you know, I want to come with my wife, Lindsay, and just hang out for the day. Can I come? I'm like, of course, Curtis, come on down. So like that that's a big deal. You know, when my clients and friends and, and that level of people from the industry want to come, and these are very busy people that usually only do events if they're working the events. To me, that's like the defining factor that we're doing a good job and we're, we're offering something that people want. People in the industry want in terms of conversations, networking, bringing the community together, as well as the food piece. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I got to, I got to hang out with Curtis, got to see him and then meet Lindsay. Oh, nice. Yeah. I got to, it was, it was great to see lots of familiar faces and I, I fully felt the vibe of community in LA. Uh, I know, L, I know New York is a little different, but there's a really strong sense of community. Let's just talk about some general themes. Um, you start and then I'll, you, you say one, and then I'll, I'll say one. Let's do it that way. So what's one general theme that you felt that you were observing with the, with the participants at the LA ChefCon? Well, the biggest theme to me, which was so meaningful and a complete surprise, was the student aspect of it and the mentorship aspect. This blew me away. I didn't expect it. It sort of all came together. Um, I guess I wasn't paying attention as we sort of created the whole conference. There's many aspects to the student piece. So maybe your listeners are aware we had it at LA Trade Tech Culinary Arts Pathway, which is a culinary school in downtown LA, part of the LA Trade Tech Community College. And they have a brand new building that they finished like a couple of years ago, Culinary Arts Building, which is an incredible, incredible facility. It looks like it should be or could could be on the campus of the CIA or, you know, Johnson & Wales. It's absolutely spectacular. I mean, it was – I've been to both of those campuses. It's nicer than the CIA. I mean, for real. Like, it's it's a really, really stunning facility. And it's it's in – it's kind of like off – of downtown, I'm not sure the exact neighborhood, but it feels like the community around the school is are the students. It's not like a lot of out-of-town students, the way CAA was run. So it's really for LA. I love that you bring up the students. Yeah, so um, that whole piece, you know, we created a student conference adjacent to our main conference for the students. Um, so what happened was when we started having discussions with them, we were going to originally have about 
160 students that we would put to work basically and give them an experience as part of our conference because they closed the whole building and all the classes for the day. And they had very good um, enrollment for the quarter. So that ended up being about 230, 240 students, which we couldn't incorporate. That's too many of them to incorporate into our conference, helping the chefs, welcoming people, giving people directions, um, you know, just helping overall with the conference, which over 100 of them did, but we couldn't use t- over 200 of them. So we basically came up with a little mini conference just for the students with three panel discussions that were curated just for them. Um, and basically, we invited some new people, but we also incorporated people that were there as speakers and participants, uh, participants of the main conference. Um, because we had them there. So like, you know, why not give the students an experience? We had the extra rooms. I think Phil Rosenthal said he had, he had spoken with the students prior to his panels. That's cool. Yeah. 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 I like that. Um, so Brad, one thing that I saw, um, I'm gonna jump in and say is Ruth Reuschel, you know, she, she was on a panel and she mentioned something that I think is obvious, but it's not said enough is that how the audience audience for restaurants has changed. And it's really, uh, applicable to the conference that you run, which is for a lot of trade. But how back when Ruth was was starting out in her career and then later working at the New York Times, LA Times, you know, food writing was for a, a high, highly educated, maybe wealthier, definitely white audience. And it's changed so dramatically. And really in the past decade, we see it in the who the critics are and who the editors are, but also who is into food. It's it's more unified. And I just thought that was something that I really, that resonated with me. Yeah, that was cool. I mean, she was on the panel, The Evolution of Food Criticism with Ruth Reichel, Bill Addison, Kush Shaw, and Leslie Souter. I think that was one of the panels that got the most attention and people talking about it. We had Bill Addison, who's the LA Times restaurant <laughs> critic. We put him in a disguise. So that was really cool. Um, he looked really hip. Uh, he looked like perfect, like East Sider LA hipster. I know. I love the, the wig was incredible. I know Bill pretty well and I've hung out with him a bunch and it, definitely the goatee mm-hmm. was, was really a nice touch. Did you recognize night. him in his disguise? I mean, only because he was on stage. And, <laughs> no, I mean, like I probably wouldn't have recognized him if I saw him like face to face. Um, but honestly, what do you think about this changing audience? I feel like your clients are are, are tackling this this idea of how restaurant you know goers the dynamic has changed completely. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's the the clientele has changed, and what they're looking for has changed as well. You know, they're not necessarily looking for all the bells and whistles and, you know, fancy linen in China. You know, it's definitely a different landscape, especially here in LA. Yeah, I agree. And I think media is the way media covers restaurants is changing drastically. You get guys like Keith Lee on on TikTok, um, just made the top of the the Blackbird most powerful players in, in food, which I think is a good call. And I think the democratization of food is is upon us. And I thought that panel really struck a chord. And Leslie did a great job moderating it. Um, what's another big takeaway that you had, Brad? I mean, I think that the food piece was really just incredible. Like um, the kitchens there. So what we did was we brought in a lot of – we had a food festival for the lunch, a two-hour food festival. And we took over five of the kitchens there at the trade tech culinary, you know, arts pathway building. And we had a meat kitchen that was just devoted to some incredible Wagyu 
beef and lamb. We had eight chefs in there, including Jetila and Mary Sue Milliken. Then we had a Santa Monica Seafood, Sustainable Seafood, two kitchens devoted to just seafood. And we had um, a fisherman, for example, do an Ikejime demo, which is very rare to see. Um, which is a tech, Japanese technique of of you know preparing a fish to eat after you catch them, and um, we had John Yao, one star Michelin from Cato, do the incredible shrimp toast with Astria caviar. We had one star Michelin um, Kevin Meehan in there, Brian Bornman who has crudo nudo. So we really really took the food to a, a a very high level, but we also had like a kitchen devoted to Portos, which is an LA institution, and it's not super you know, fancy. It's, it's, it's an amazing bakery, super high volume bakery. And they, they came in and took over kitchen, but they did dishes that they don't do at the restaurant. So it was a way for their chefs to stretch and expose what they can do. Um, and, and, you know, to have like a two hour food festival in the middle of a conference, I think is pretty cool. And, you know, what we learned from doing it since 2018 is that a lot of people come not only for the content and the food, they really come to see their friends in the industry that they never see. So we've always, we've over the time, we've stretched these times. So we have half an hour breaks in between the sessions so people can hang out. We have a two hour lunch. We have a two hour after party with more food and, and drinks and networking. So um, yeah, the food piece is, is a big takeaway. Super cool that you bring that up. I thought the food was excellent at all the events and the opening party as well. You had really, you really paid attention to details. One theme I saw was technology rapidly changing, but also a little bit of a an old school streak. I think that the panel with Lawrence Longo and Suzanne Goen, it struck me that um, you know Suzanne is more old school, and it seems like she uses like Google Docs and text to kind of organize her thoughts with her group and her stakeholders. But then you've got a guy like Lawrence who's like very, very savvy with especially digital marketing through social channels, and also working with like a lot of brands. That's his gig. Um, but I liked I liked that it wasn't like the kids are taking over mentality. It was like we have many generations here in the restaurant industry. It's okay to have like a notebook and have that be part of your 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 workflow. Um, I just felt like that was almost calming that Suzanne was was admittedly a little more old school. I don't know if you can agree with this kind of split audience or this split kind of mentality. Yeah, I do agree. I mean, there's a lot of old school, you know, chefs and operators that do things the same way, similar, you know, similar that they've been doing for many years. And then you have, you know, you know, younger, younger people that are definitely doing things different, very, very, very differently. You know, it's true. It's cool. Um, I'd like to, what is Lawrence Longo? What is this deal? Like, I feel like I really liked, he was probably my favorite speaker of the day. Oh, wow. He's yeah. a very cool guy. Um, he does a food festival himself called the Tender Fest. Oh, right, right. And it's, right. it's all on chicken tenders and it's, it's amazing. He had it, um, he had it like about a month ago. It's always really, really good, but he, so he's growing, Prince Street Pizza, which is very delicious pizza. And he has um, Irv's Burgers, which is like an LA institution that was a family business for many years that he's he's um, partnered with now and he's growing that. And, um, you know, he's aggressive and he's very savvy. He's very connected. And like you said, he's great with sort of, you know, social media and just really getting the word out. He has, you know, relationships with, you know, so many influential people here in LA, but it's also really great quality. I mean, even the, 
the herbs burgers that they served. They he did a um so he w- he was at LA ChefCon for the after party. So they did Prince Street pizza and they pr- actually did a, a white pizza with Astria caviar, which was delicious, and then a few other pizzas. Oh, I had one of those from Prince Street. That was that was a cool that's the first time I've ever come out combined those two foods, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. It but worked, it, it worked. And then he did a collaboration with Jordan Oaken um for a burger an herbs burger and it was delicious man that's really good and the fries. that was really cool yeah the after party part was cool um brad let me let me just let you close and i want to get a sense you know are you going to do this again do you feel next year i know it's, it's fresh for you and and really who are you most excited to meet at the at the con i feel like i got to meet so many great people that i i know from the industry but who, who did you get to meet you know what, man? It was the students. The students blew me away. Like to incorporate the students and the instructors and the staff of of the school was magical. And again, we didn't expect it. We did create a mentorship program where five winning students, after presenting resumes and letters, um, you know, cover letters, we did interviews with them. But we paired them up. Five winning students that each got a thousand dollars, and we paired them up with. Um, industry mentors that are mentoring them for one year. Um, and we have Susan Feniger and Keith Corbin and three other amazing, well, Ari Rosenson from Spot, Wolfgang Puck Fine Dining Group, Ryan Wilson from Lowry's, Della Gossett, executive pastry chef at Spago. And we were paired them up and they've already started their, you know, their relationship and they're going to get mentored for a year. And I got to know some of these students and these are just very, very special, hard, very hardworking amazing future professionals of our industry. So for me, like bringing this experience to so many of those students and seeing how valuable it was working with the chefs in the kitchens and seeing how these super high profile, you know, chefs work in the kitchen and bang out, you know, a lunch for 550 people, which a lot of these students have never seen. And to give them that experience, to me, that was my big takeaway and what will fuel me to do it again. I love it, Brad. Thanks a lot for sharing that. And I agree. This is the future of the of the industry and, and really the mentorship program that you've structured is is something that you don't see every day. And I, I appreciate that you were able to make these links. So I hope to uh I hope to talk to you again, man. I, I really enjoy spending time with you. I hope you come next year. You are officially part of the LA ChefCon family, Matt. So um <laughs> you, you don't book your travel yet, but we should have a date, you know, in the next few months. I love it. Well, we'll definitely keep talking about it. I think it's important to keep LA in our minds because it's it's such an important food city and appreciate your time here, Brad. Thank you for your support, Matt. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 